If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Winograd. For this episode, you're going to listen to the first half of an interview I did with Carrie Baldwin. Carrie is one of the fellow podcast hosts for the Christians for Liberty Network here at the Libertarian Christian Institute. She's been on my show, both this and my old podcast, multiple times. Carrie might be best known for a debate she did at the Soho Forum on the topic of abortion, and she's also very good on Reformed Theology. She hosts the Reformed Libertarian Podcast with Greg Baus. And Carrie also has her own project beyond the things she does with LCI. She has her own website and podcast called Dare to Think Podcast, which is part of her website called Mere Liberty. And Mere Liberty also, through that, she does classes on the Socratic method. And so Carrie has had some changes to her life recently. She was also doing some work with a grassroots movement within the Liberty Movement, but that recently ended when this organization made some questionable endorsements. And so, just because Carrie has made some changes and is going to be diving back into her courses here soon, I decided it'd be a good opportunity to have Carrie back on to talk about a lot of different things that we have to talk about. So in this first half, we talked about the recent changes that she's gone through relating to this organization, we talked about the issues of certain candidates that are often endorsed by conservatives and Christians and what makes them bad candidates. And we also then talked about her upcoming classes, the Mere Liberty courses, where she teaches about the Socratic method. We go into what the Socratic method is and why that is something that Christians should consider useful and consider learning, why things like philosophy and whatnot are useful and not just man-made inventions. So there'll be in a few weeks, another episode coming out where you'll hear the second half of my interview with Carrie, where we get into some different topics related to porn and lust and some things that have been being talked about a lot on social media and whatnot. And it's a topic that Christians often are concerned about, pornography and lust in our culture. And that might be something that they feel the government should be involved in. But we as libertarians might have different perspectives on that. And so that'll be coming up. So I'll give you a little sneak preview for that. But as for now, that's all I have for introductions for this episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Carrie Baldwin. Hello, everyone. And I want to welcome our guest for today, Carrie Baldwin. Carrie, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, Jacob. How are you? 
Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm recovering from the holiday season and all the traveling and gift giving and doing a lot of stuff with the kids and taking a little bit of break from the podcast. And now we're getting back into it here with actually, we're going to be doing a couple episodes. But I feel like probably 90% of my audience is familiar with you. We both work for Libertarian Christian Institute, and you've been on my show several times. But let's just start out here with a little brief introduction, a reintroduction for those who know you or who don't know you. Who are you? What do you do? And what's your background? Yeah. So my name is Carrie Baldwin. I have a website called mereliberty.com, but I also work with the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm a co-author with the guys on the book, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. Mere Liberty is my website and I have my own podcast called Dare to Think. And that is where I challenge and rethink prevailing paradigms in politics, religion, and culture. And I also teach critical thinking courses using the Socratic method, which I think we're going to talk about more later. So that's a very brief introduction to who I am. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, we will be talking about those classes here in a little bit. Carrie, I wanted to start out by talking about some of the recent happenings that you have been somewhat involved in, or at least got to witness. And we are going to be somewhat vague, probably just vague enough that people listening can hopefully figure out who we're talking about, what we're talking about, but vague enough that it's not too on the nose. So we're going to talk about a group that we're going to refer to as grassroots Voldemort and their endorsement of warmonger Voldemort. In in the recent past, you have been, along with working on your own stuff and stuff with LCI, you've been doing work for this sort of like grassroots organization. And we use the term Voldemort because we don't dare speak their name. But suffice it to say, this is an organization that is known in political circles and in the liberty movement. And to summarize, you have ended up no longer working for this group because Mm -hmm. they endorsed someone, we'll call them Warmonger Voldemort, for President of the United States, someone who is pretty unpopular, not only in in our circles, but even was getting criticism by people in circles that I was not expecting to see criticisms come from. Mm -hmm. Candace Owens, my favorite instance of a criticism, referred to this person as someone that she would endorse for President of the State of Israel. Because Mm -hmm. of her seemingly Israel first rhetoric. So that's about as on the nose as we'll get here in in talking about this person and these groups. So I want to give you the floor here to talk a little bit about that experience as much as you feel free to talk about it. And also, I want to answer what some people might be confused about in terms of why there was a problem with this candidate, why some people like them, and then why people like, like us are critical of them. And they're not even just this person in particular, but I think this person is almost an avatar of sorts for a particular type of candidate. We'll often in libertarian circles refer to this type of candidate as like a neocon. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a term that a lot of people, including like a lot of Christians who maybe like pay a little bit of attention to politics, but not a lot, have heard before, but they they don't know what we're talking about. They don't know what we mean when we say that these are warmongers, these are bad candidates. So I've thrown you a lot of different hoops to jump through there. So take it away. (laughs) Okay. So I was actually asked, actually it was around this time last year to apply for a position with Grassroots Voldemort here at the state level in New Mexico. So I went ahead and applied for the position And I applied for the position because it seemed like a great opportunity for me to 
influence in a libertarian way politics here in New Mexico, which is very needed if anybody has followed any of New Mexico politics or paid attention at all. Our governor is incredibly progressive, almost as bad as Gavin Newsom, maybe worse. Our state was one of the first to shut down during COVID and it's a nightmare here. And I decided to apply for the position with this organization because of their principles. Their principles were very much aligned with libertarian philosophy and free market economic theory. And so I thought, okay, this is a good opportunity. And not only that, I knew of a lot of people who had worked in and with the organization who were libertarians, even libertarian anarchists. Actually, one of the guys that interviewed me was somebody who was very much a Mises guy. And our entire interview consisted of talking about Mises's human action and things like that. So I was really excited about this organization. And I know a lot of people, even libertarians, were very excited about what this organization was doing. And for the most part, they dealt strictly with policy and local candidates. They weren't really big into endorsing federal candidates or president, although they had endorsed federal candidates in the past, it just wasn't really like their bread and butter. So when I got hired on, one of the things that sort of trickled down to us was, oh, this is going to be the first year where this organization was going to endorse a presidential candidate. They felt like this was one of the best ways to influence. And so they were going to see if they could endorse a presidential candidate. In part, they're very anti-Trump. And so they didn't want Trump to, they don't want Trump to get the nomination for the Republican seat. But what we were told was, we're only going to endorse somebody if they are a champion. They use this term champion to mean somebody who's really aligned with us on our vision and values. And I was even asked very specifically in my interview process, will you support the presidential candidate we endorse? And I said, if they actually align with your values, that's fine. So at any rate, once the presidential primary started happening, all the primary debates, I think there was a lot of us who were like, well, this is interesting. We don't really know who they're going to endorse because we could see how they would endorse nobody. There were reasons not to endorse DeSantis. There were reasons not to endorse, obviously, Trump or Haley or any of the other candidates. And so a lot of us were thinking, well, what the heck are they going to do? And I think most of us probably thought that they would endorse DeSantis because he seemed to be anti-Trump in a way, but also a very populist candidate and with some exceptions, more or less aligned with the organization. But... Lo and behold, I wake up one morning and I get a text message actually from somebody that is a former or was a former colleague of mine who was like, you're never going to guess who they endorsed. I was like, what? At any rate, so they, this organization endorses a candidate for president that came as a shock to all of us. Like none of us in the organization were notified, at least as far as I think probably like the state directors were given a heads up, that was a possibility, but the rest of us were completely in the dark. So at any rate, when the endorsement came out, many of us, myself included, were like, dude, 
this does not make any sense. This candidate is not aligned, as far as I can tell, at all with the values. And it was, it really did come as a shock to most of us. There were some other things which maybe we can talk about that sort of I felt tipped their hand as far as abandoning their own values is concerned, but that's essentially what happened. And I remember when this news broke of this organization endorsing this candidate, I mean, I knew you worked for this organization. I have other friends of mine who I knew worked for this this organization or had worked with the organization on different things. And so I reached out to, I think I actually heard it from you first. And then I went to like social media and Twitter, saw people talking about it and then talked to you about it, talked to others I knew. And it did seem like a, I don't know, like something out of left field. Because I remember you talking about joining this organization a year ago and being super excited. And I knew Mm -hmm. so many people of our sort of milieu who were a part of this. So I just kind of thought like, well, they would never endorse this type of candidate. It felt like I was a bad dream or I was being punked or something. Let's get into some of the specifics here. What are some of the things that make this candidate and even just more broadly, this type of candidate, someone that is not someone that aligns with both with libertarian principles, first of all, because this was a libertarian group. So we would probably mm-hmm. at least be charitable to only hold them to that. There are certainly probably also Christian reasons for why this person would be a, a bad candidate. But we can start with like the libertarian ones first and then go from there. Yeah. So this candidate has been nicknamed all kinds of things. My favorite was Dick Cheney in high heels, <laughs> which is funny because we do have a Dick Cheney in high heels who is Dick Cheney's actual daughter. But at any rate, I think the worst part of about this candidate is that she is a warmonger. She's absolutely in the pocket of the military industrial complex. And she has said some pretty outrageous things. Like one of the things that I remember her saying was, we shouldn't have a department of defense. We should have a department of offense. And it's like, Mm. oh my gosh. So, but here's the thing. And this was ultimately why I was so adamant against supporting her is this isn't just some Republican lackey who doesn't have influence when it comes to foreign policy, right? Which is the major, I would say, the major disagreement and alignment. This is somebody who is jockeying for commander-in-chief of the United States military, essentially the person who can push the, the big red button, right? And she has made it unambiguously clear that she will do whatever it takes as far as military violence is concerned to get her way. And that's not okay, not just from a foreign policy perspective, but from monetary policy and economic perspective. I mean, one of the major reasons why we're experiencing inflation right now is because of government spending. And one of the biggest spenders is military spending. People want to complain about the climate. (laughs) Well, the military is probably one of the biggest contributors to pollution in the climate. It does not make sense in the slightest to be advocating for a candidate, not only who can push the big red button, but the ability to do so depends upon ruining the economy, ruining our monetary system, and making literally making life wor- worse for the rest of us. I had actually posted a video 
I don't know, maybe it was a week or a week and a half before the endorsement came out talking about how I think it was Ohio who had constitutionalized the right to abortion in their state. And Mm -hmm. my whole beef with that (laughs) was not so much that abortion had been protected, but that the reason why women felt like they needed to protect it was because of the economy. And here you have candidates like this warmonger, Voldemort, we're calling her, who are advocating for more war. We literally can't afford it. Even if it was noble in some sense, we can't afford it. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't see that any of her policy positions can be construed as aligned with this libertarian organization because of her adamant stance on being a foreign interventionist. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there. I forgot that she had said that line about a department of offense instead of defense, which I mean, we'll go back to the libertarian stuff in a second, but just on a Christian level, listen, like we can make, I can be very charitable here. I mean, I'm very, people listen to my show know I spend probably every other episode railing on about foreign policy and why I'm anti-war and against all these different interventions and why I think that the Christian position should be calling for peace and for ceasefires. But even if there are, I think, respectful positions of disagreement with mine, within the sort of like Christian orthodoxy, there's the idea of like a just war theory. And I would even agree, and I've said this, I agree on paper, right, in theory, in the the world of abstract, with the idea of a just war theory. And in the world of reality, it's like, okay, if we just had a Department of Defense and all they did, all we did was we had a group of people who were ready to come out and protect us from a foreign invasion at a moment's notice and we had architecture built around that. Even if I was going to object to that, because maybe I would object to it on purely anarchist terms Mm -hmm. of like it's socialized defense, that'd be like a lot lower on the list of my priorities. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about someone who says we need to be the world's police force and and then some when you're using an idea like the Department of Offense. So, I mean, I don't know how, I mean, there's the libertarian critiques you made, which is, listen, that's just not fiscally responsible or wise. That's not compatible with libertarian ideas in terms of economic policies and and sound fiscal policy and balanced budgets and, and whatnot. But then on a Christian front, like that's just, I don't know how anyone could be okay with that kind of rhetoric. I just find it baffling. Christians are very concerned with the war on the family that the left has lobbed against us, right? There is a concerted effort on the part of the left to destroy the family. Everything from just the relationship between men and women to the relationship between children and their parents. And it does not make sense that a foreign policy where we're constantly sending our citizens off to war is somehow family-friendly. We are living in a time where trauma is a major talking point, major issue of society today. It is very much connected to even the trans stuff on the right. And we have been at war for 20 years. We've been sending off fathers and mothers and daughters and sons to die in foreign wars, which have absolutely nothing to do with fighting for freedom. So this candidate cannot claim 
to be doing this on Christian grounds. Now, I will say she's very adamant (laughs) about supporting Israel. I think the only stance that could be even construed as Christian, and that's assuming that you take a dispensational position, is her idea that she wants to protect Israel. But at the end of the day, even that is questionable in terms of true doctrine, which I know that you've talked to Gregory about the problems with dispensational theology before. So the only Christian thing that she's appealing to is a very dubious doctrine about (laughs) the end times, right? And other than that, she is what I think Mises would call a war socialist. She is more Mm -hmm. than willing to be socialist when it comes to war and military spending. And that is an attack on the family. It is an attack on children. And it is an attack on our economic prosperity. And that is creating a lot of the trauma that we are now seeing and is contributing to all the stuff that we are having to deal with from the left. So I cannot see how in any fashion this candidate can be supported either as a libertarian or as a Christian. It doesn't make any sense. Well, and to add to what you said, I mean, there's also good evidence and people have railed on this fact, including on the debate stage with her, that she's made her money through the Mm -hmm. military industrial complex. So it's also a conflict of interests entirely. It reminds me of my days back when I was a a lefty and more of a Bernie Sanders guy. Bernie Sanders would call it socialism for the rich. And Mm -hmm. one of the things he's right about, like the military industrial complex is a sort of socialist redistribution of wealth for rich people who have invested in weapons manufacturing and in the military industrial complex. So that's definitely something, again, it's like we can say that Christians could say, listen, I'm not anti-war. I'm pro-self-defense and I'm pro... Like, okay, fine. But that's fine. That's yeah. different than what we're talking about here. <laughs> well, and she's not only supported by the military-industrial complex, she's supported by globalists like BlackRock. So mm, yeah. it's like, <laughs> for every reason in the world, she's the worst candidate. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, boy. One of the things, I mean, well, there's a lot of bad there. To try to steal man why... I don't know, this doesn't even seem like something a libertarian would support because libertarians are traditionally divided on this topic. But maybe some right-wingers and evangelicals support this candidate because of her positions on abortion. So, I mean, this isn't even just about this person specifically, but just broadly in general, this kind of touches on just the fact that a large swath of people on the right are single-issue voters on the topic of abortion. And obviously... That's an area of of study and and a focus for you. We've talked about this topic before in the past, but what are this person's positions on abortion? Why are there ways we can criticize that? And also ways that we would criticize the right wing's rhetoric and policy prescriptions on abortion more broadly? Well, I would say she's not pro-life. She has said that essentially what Congress needs to do is write a law that says when it's permissible to have an abortion versus not. So, and I've heard this from the Republicans already, what they're planning on doing at the federal level is to pass some sort of law that looks a lot like Roe v. Wade, i.e. you can't have an abortion up to some degree of viability. And that's this candidate's position as well. So, As much as I have been critical of the pro-life movement, I wouldn't call her pro-life. I would Mm, say that she is a Republican opportunist who is simply trying to couch a codification of Roe v. Wade Uh. in 
pro-life terms, which is what most of the Republicans are doing, by the way. Well, yeah, it's so similar. The Republicans are often on abortion, what the NRA is to gun rights. They're almost like, you could almost <laughs> call them like controlled opposition. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, a great, like, that's a great analogy. And, but it, it's so sad because I think there's a lot of right-wing Christians and maybe non-Christians who really care about gun rights, really care about abortion, who fall for the sweet words and the fluffy rhetoric that a lot of candidates use. But really, these candidates don't care about those issues. They're just, they know what they have to do to earn the votes from the right-wing voting base. Before Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were overturned by the Supreme Court, Republican candidates could afford to be staunch allies of the unborn because they knew that it wouldn't make a dang difference, right? So when the Supreme Court overturned those two cases, it actually put Republicans in a position of actually having to defend their views. And a lot of them walked it back because they hadn't thought it through, right? They just knew that if they appealed to the base, which is abortion is evil and it's murder and this, that, and another, they knew that they would get those votes and that's it. They exploited the base. And when Roe v. Wade was overturned, that was in essence, like people think that that was a Republican win, but it wasn't a Republican win because then the ball was put back in the Republicans' court and it was like, okay, what are you going to do about this now? And you had a bunch of Republicans who had been staunch, I think abortion is murder and should be completely illegal and this, that, and another. They had to step back and be like, oh, I haven't actually thought through this. And so now the Republican position is to codify something that looks very similar to Roe. And that's it. So, and this candidate is just part for the course. I will also say she was asked about the transition surgery for minors issue. And she is quoted as saying that she thinks that's just a decision between doctors and and the parents. And like, okay, I understand the transition issue for adults, right? If an adult who in their right mind is making this decision, as much as I disagree with it, they should be legally free to do so. But she was talking specifically about children and whether parents and doctors should be making these decisions for children. That's not a conservative stance to take. She was saying the government should stay out of it. So I wish I could say that there were some redeeming factors about her candidacy, but I really can't say that at all. On a social level, it doesn't make sense. She doesn't strike me as a conservative in the slightest. She keeps on appealing to identity politics with her being a woman and in absolutely terrible ways. Yes, like her wearing high heels is somehow legitimizing her standing up on foreign policy or something of that crazy nature. It's like, no, dude, this is, don't like, don't do that. Don't be like, I'm a woman, hear me roar. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> talking about your policy issues. It's stupid. Yeah. So I want to move on here in a bit to talking about what you're doing with your classes because you're going to be diving back into those and, and kind of trying to expand those here. I guess like the last thing I wanted to ask you on this subject, in this experience you've gone through, what do you think are some things you've learned or things that maybe you knew before, but now like you've experienced it and you just want to maybe say to the listeners in terms of what Christians need to be wary of or be thinking about when we engage in politics. This is something that I've often had to think and wrestle with too, because I've 
in different ways than you, been engaged in politics and the LP and stuff. And there is always this sort of tension between how can we as Christians be, is there a way for Christians to engage in the political process in a way that doesn't compromise our values? Actually, this is something that I recently, to plug one of our other podcasts, the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast, I recently guest hosted on there and, and answered a listener submitted question along this topic in terms of can Christians serve in politics? And I said, well, it's complicated because there's just so many different conflicting interests and agendas at play. And it can be really hard to decipher all those things and then act with principles and conviction in those situations. So before we go on to the next subject here, maybe talk a little bit about that, maybe some things you've learned and just any wisdom you want to pass along to the listeners. Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, nothing is as it seems. This organization seemed to be one way, and they continue to insist that they are abiding by their principles. I will say that their parent organization and the, we'll say, founding members read a book by, it was written by one of the founding members. I would say those are people who are in disagreement with this, with their daughter organization. Nothing is as it seems to be. And I think that is also true in various Christian organizations. It's very easy to think, oh, this person comes from this institution and has this opinion, and therefore the entire institution holds this opinion. (laughs) And I don't think that's true. Number one, it's important to understand that institutions are simply organizational structures with individuals in them with varying opinions on any number of things right? There was a number of us who quit or got fired over this endorsement. There's a greater number of people who stayed because they felt like they couldn't afford to lose the paycheck. Hmm. And I can understand being in that position. The other thing that I would say, as far as Christians participating in politics, it is complicated if you don't understand what your own principles are. The thing is that if you act on your principles, you're not going to be in the political business for very long. (laughs) I think that's evidently true. In fact, I will say this. I did an interview for a position with, well, I won't say who it was with, but it was a political position and it had to do with communications to the media. And one of the questions that they asked me was, could you write an op-ed that explains the position of our candidates or politicians or whomever, even if you believe deep down inside that it was the wrong decision or the wrong policy. Without skipping a beat, I said, no, I cannot write that. Hmm. And he was, my interviewer was taken aback. He was like, wow, I'm surprised by this. And so a Christian being in politics, if you can work for somebody that respects your principles, Great. I think we need more Javier Miles out there who are deconstructing <laughs> <Yeah>. the state <laughs> apparatus. Absolutely. If you can do that, do it. But your principles are going to be challenged left and right, literally. And if you can hold those principles and maintain your position, great. But don't expect to make a career out of it. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. And I'd also recommend anyone who wants to do it, like, make sure you have people you can trust who share your principles that can help be a mirror or someone people to bounce ideas and situations off of because sometimes 
I found sometimes you just you're the frog and gradually boiling water when you're mm-hmm. in the muck of politics and you don't realize like you'll be like I don't know is that big of a deal and someone goes yeah no that's a big deal yeah <laughs> you should have red alarms going off in your brain right now so I yeah. agree with a lot of what you said there for sure well and this segues a little bit into my classes right because yeah. being able to think through the implications and consequences of certain policy positions and what might happen in the near and distant future as a result of that is very important. I mean, I literally, I got to a point, I was trying to, I I mean, I wanted to keep the paycheck too. And so I was trying to rationalize at one point, can I stay with this organization? And at one point it occurred to me, if this candidate does what she's saying she's going to do, it's going to wreak havoc on people that I love, my children, for example, who are getting ready to graduate from high school. If they can't go out and get a job or pay for their own place to live or anything like that, because this candidate is kicking up inflation so that she can have her war spending, I can contri- like if I if she won because I contributed in 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 terms of support by way of my job, I'm culpable for my own kid's failure, right? So I had to think through that. And a lot of people, they don't think through that. Maybe their kids are younger or maybe they think, okay, I'll just get past this and and it'll go away. But being able to think through the logical consequences of these policy decisions or what an employer might be up to if they implement certain things that go against your principles, go against your beliefs, you have to be able to think through those things and decide for yourself is this actually something that I want to be a party to? Yeah. No, that's a perfect segue into talking about Mere Liberty, your website and the courses that you do, which are specifically aimed at the teaching people the Socratic method. Uh, I know you you teach both like youth, adolescent, and adult classes along, along these lines. So I want to talk a little bit about that. The Socratic method is a way of... of kind of like doing like a logical approach and questioning of different topics or questions or working things out in a particular way. So let's go ahead and for those who may be not as familiar with it or have heard the term but never really heard it defined before, what is the Socratic method? And what are your classes aimed at in terms of helping to teach people what it is and how to use it in real life? Right. So if anybody has heard of the Socratic method, they probably know it as a means of teaching debate skills. So it is often used in law school to teach that courtroom style debate. It is also used, there's a popular YouTuber out there named Jan Helfeld, who will try to corner people and almost embarrass them for holding political views that don't make a lot of sense. So this is how a lot of people understand what the Socratic method is. And Socrates used it in this way to a degree, but this isn't actually how he used it broadly and it's not how I use it. So Socrates used this idea of asking questions about the world around you in order to discover and learn new things. And that is how I use it. Now, critical thinking is the ability to communicate with other people. It's the ability to think through problems and try to solve them and that sort of thing. What is lacking, though, and actually you can basically Google 
lack of critical thinking skills in the workplace. And you'll find a ton of articles which explain how this skill, which is considered a professional soft skill, is actually in high demand because it is on the decline in the workplace. So why would this be? Well, thinking is, or rather I should say learning, why Socrates actually used this as a means of learning. When you learn, you are thinking. But when you were in school, it was assumed that you knew how to think based on whether or not you scored well on a test, right? And scoring well on the test just means that you're good at memory recall. That's all that means. So most of us were actually never learned or never taught how to think through content that we were being taught in order to learn it. We were told what to learn, not how to learn. We were told what to think, not how to think. And then we were expected to memorize that and and regurgitate it on a test. And if we scored high, then we were good students. But most of us never actually learned how to learn. We never learned how to think. And even those people who scored well on tests were more perhaps intuitive thinkers, but they wouldn't be able to tell you what their process was for learning or thinking through those things. So what I do with my courses is I actually take my students back to foundations of learning itself. And I have broken down this learning process. Now, this isn't something that I've invented. I've borrowed from... um, I've borrowed from certain sort of experts in critical thinking, including Mortimer Adler and Richard Paul and Linda Elder and Rolf Reber and Michael Strong and some other people, along with just my own experience as an independent researcher. But what I've done is I've gone through and I've broken down this learning process into basically four phases, which is general understanding, which is getting just a surface level understanding of what what the author or the lecturer, whomever intends for you to learn, and then conceptualization, which is digging deep into the ideas, then analysis, figuring out whether or not they're good ideas or valid ideas, and then synthesis, which is where you incorporate those ideas into your own. Yes, I've created this course to not only teach you the skills, but give you the opportunity to actually put them into practice so that you can feel the sensation of learning is thinking and and thinking is learning and really see the systematic approach to to that learning. Yeah. No, that's a good that's a good breakdown of it and that I've never taken your class myself, but it's definitely something I kind of had debate training in high school, so like a lot of what you're saying is familiar with me, but I I mm-hmm. learned it kind of in what you're describing in more of the political context and yeah. only uh, actually, more recently, since I've been podcasting, have I started to use that in other areas of my life? I've started to apply it more to not just, not even just like, I mean, you can obviously apply it to questions of theology, questions of, of biblical interpretation, and in questioning mm-hmm. how people come to certain conclusions. I've also began to use it in like my parenting. Mm-hmm. I try to now. To, to varying degrees of success, I'll, I'll say with that little caveat, because sometimes you, you approach things and like it works. Like if I question why my eight-year-old is doing something, that works better than if I'm questioning why my four-year-old is doing something. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but at the same time, there is something about engaging kids that, that like 
a little bit above their level of development that kind of pushes them to start. Like, oh, dad's asking me questions and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of modeling that for them. But yeah, this is, I think this is something that can apply to many di- different areas of life. I'm wondering if you can give an example of, or two beyond what, what we've said here in terms of ways that people, after they've started to learn this way of critical thinking and analysis and questioning, can, can use this in different areas of, of their, their life to maybe tackle different challenges or navigate different areas of, of their, their, their life. Yeah, so one of the, one of the myths of critical thinking is that it's for the bookish nerds who like to be academic, like to jump into books, like to do that sort of thing. But really, that's that's not actually true. Critical thinking is something that human beings were designed to do. But it's also a skill that has to be learned. And it's applicable in every area of life. Um, even if you're not academic or interested in books or things like that. The approach to thinking through new content and learning it can be applied, for example, with somebody like my son, who's ADHD and is very not academic, hates everything about school, but will but can learn how to fix a car and the mechanics of it and all the science behind it simply by jumping on a vehicle and learning how to do it and watching somebody else do it right? If he takes these skills, these of asking questions in a systematic way, right? He may not be writing an essay about how to fix a car, but he's learning a necessary skill that can give him an income in the future, not just an income, but a goal and purpose in life. So it can apply for the hands-on non-academic learner. You mentioned parenting. This is something that I've used with my own kids when you use, and I call it Socratic practice, which is a little bit more broad than Socratic mm. method, Socratic practice is just incorporating this inquiry-based dialogue into everyday life. When you do that with your kids, what you're doing is you are creating the environment and milieu that teaches your children that you are safe to come to when they're teenagers and dealing with controversial Mm. or scary topics like, hey, mom, I just experienced pot for the first time in my life, right? Do they want to, like, as a parent, I want my kids to feel safe coming to me saying, I screwed up or, hey, I experienced this crazy thing that any other parent would freak out about and they need to talk through it with me, right? Yeah. They feel safe coming to me because I've already created this atmosphere of guess what? We can talk about things and I'm not going to flip out about it and we can work through them the issue and arrive at conclusions and I will help you think through those things without you feeling like you're going to be in trouble for thinking through that, right? Or even arriving at different conclusions than me. So from a parenting perspective, it's setting you up for a healthy relationship with your teenage and adult children. So that's another, another way that, that you might use it. And I would say the, the other way, or maybe a third way aside from academics, which we've already discussed, is simply in your professional life. This is a skill, like I said, that is on the decline in the workplace. And it has to do with the fact that it's not being, it wasn't taught to us 
by yeah. and large in school. And now it's something that employers are, are looking for. And by the way, with technologies like AI coming up, AI will never outpace the ability or the need for humans to actually reason through things. I know that people like to think of AI as being something that can supplant human reasoning, but AI is something that mirrors human reasoning. And so as long as human beings maintain the skill of learning and the skill of thinking through things, they won't be surpassed by AI. And if this skill starts to go down, AI is going to reflect that because all AI is a, is a mirror image of, of whatever it is that the programmer has, has given it yeah. instructions with. This reminds me of, I shared this in, in one of our group chats. I don't know if you caught it, but I, I was fooling around with like the newest version of chat GPT and it can create images. I was like, let me fool around with it, see if I can create some images because sometimes we, we have to come up with graphics for our podcasts and stuff. And I'm, I'm working on an episode that's going to be based out of Romans 12, which is the idea of not being trans, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And mm-hmm. the, so I was like, like, draw me a picture of a bunch of like kind of cartoonist stick figures walking in one direction and then one stick figure walking in the opposite direction. And it couldn't do it. It kept on just drawing mm-hmm. all the stick figures walking in one direction. And I kept saying, no, you, you need to have one of them walking another direction. And the AI would insist, okay, here, I got it. Here's a picture where clearly one person's walking in the other direction, but it was still just all walking in one direction. (laughs) I tried using Socratic reasoning to help the AI figure out what it was getting wrong. I was like, listen, look at your picture. What direction Mm -hmm. are the people walking in? Is anyone walking in a different direction? And then like, and I was like, no, they're all walking in the same direction. Like, okay, so can you, realizing that, change it. Like, yes, we can change it. And then it doesn't change it again. I was like, ah, but kind of, I think it's kind of highlighting a little bit what we're talking about here, like the differences between AI and human reasoning and stuff. And that is, if someone doesn't understand something, that's kind of, I was trying to, I was trying to use human reasoning with what's just essentially programming. But that is how you would try to teach someone when they're doing something wrong. Like you can, and this is what I do at work, right? And you talked about like, doing things in our profession. Well, in my profession, I have to train people. And when I'm training people, I don't like just like telling people, look at what I do and copy it. Or just Mm -hmm. like, here's a list of just things you have to do and you have to do them. And it just has to be done this way. I try to Mm -hmm. teach people like, this is why we do things this way. And and Mm -hmm. then while they're doing it, I ask them, "So, so what are you doing here? Is depending on what the goal we're trying to accomplish is, like, for example, if I work in automotives, like if we're assembling something inside a transmission and I see they're putting something together wrong, mm-hmm. instead of just coming up and saying, no, that's wrong and showing them how it's wrong, I'll be like, so look at that. You're about to put this piece onto that. Is that going to mesh up right? You know, and yeah. sometimes I even trick them. I'll come up and ask them that question when they are doing it right. Am I doing this right? And it makes them think about it. They'll be like, no, yeah, I'm doing it right. But like, it, it, instead of then just being mindless drones that like, oh, I just, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. I don't understand it. I'm trying to teach them to understand what they're yeah. doing and to be thinking about it. And that helps them learn it. And this is not how schools work, as you've highlighted. Like schools don't teach people to think about these things and to learn them in a way that no. 
it's not just people just act out the memorization they crammed in the night before. And then, I mean, heck, some people say, oh, I don't remember anything that I learned in high school. Like, yeah, you don't learn anything. You don't remember. You probably, yeah, obviously 10 years later, what are you going to remember? But the point is probably two weeks later, you probably didn't remember what you just remembered for a test two weeks ago. (laughs) And it, it, it raises a really interesting question because some people have said, well, AI can learn. And I I think that begs the question about what learning is, right? Mm. If AI can learn, in your case, chat GPT should have been able to fix its error, right? Simply by having more information input. So how is a classroom full of students treated? Well, it's treated as a bunch of empty hardware that needs software installed into the brains and then check the programming to make sure that the programming or the software is installed correctly. And the way you do that is by administering a test, right? So if you believe that's what learning is, of course you think AI can learn. But guess what? That's not what learning is. Learning is the ability to think through an idea and reason about it. And AI can't do that. No. The other thing I want to say, as far as application is concerned, that I forgot to mention before, has to do with theology and your Christian faith. One of the things that you're doing when you are thinking through an idea and even challenging it is testing the the truthfulness and the accuracy of an idea. And you can do this with sound doctrine. And the reality is, is that the truth stands up to scrutiny no matter how, how hard you press against it. And so you can use the Socratic method to even increase your understanding of biblical doctrine and challenge those false doctrines or even test a doctrine to see if it's false or not and learn and grow. The reality is that our faith is not some some fanciful sentiment or emotional thing. It is very real. It is about the truth of reality. And the truth of reality stands up to scrutiny. And one of the ways that you might build strength, we'll say, in faith is to test these. And actually, Scripture even tells us to to test the spirits to know if they're from God or not, right? And so one way, in fact, it was Dr. R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul from Ligonier Ministries, who advocated for using the Socratic method, even in learning theology and doctrine. So that's another another application that I wanted to mention. So that's a perfect segue to the last question I wanted to ask on this, which is I've noticed there is a surprisingly not unconsequential amount of, of Christians and from surprisingly different camps who have a very low view of these kind of things, of philosophy, of using things like the Socratic method or human reason and things like that. I mean, I've seen Eastern Orthodox Christians that have this kind of low view of these things. I've seen some Baptists, some Anabaptists. I've even seen like the weird hyper-Calvinists who are like the presuppositionalists. And the common objection from these different groups, if I was going to boil it down to like one kind of like overarching objection is that they say that these things are inventions of man, that they are distractions from like just divine revelation that we have in scripture. And they would say that the use of human reason actually 
it won't lead you towards the truth. It'll it'll lead you away, or you'll you'll use your reason to sub subvert the truth. They'll use the analogy of like the garden and say like, well, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if we're trying to use our knowledge and not God's knowledge, that's the same sin as the as the garden. So, what I I think that's wrong, and I could I could give my own reasons, but I'm curious what you would say to the types of Christians who kind of I don't know hold their their nose up at at the kind of things that that you're doing in your classes. Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, and I've already mentioned this, human beings were designed to think. In fact, I would even say that this is one of the things that differentiates humans from animals in, in, insofar as we are image bearers of God. One of those attributes is the ability to reason and think through things. So that's number one. Number two, we are, God created us to create. So of course, there are creations of man. There's lots of things that man has created that are perfectly legitimate for us to use. If that were not so, we would have to live a very primitive sort of life. Even if you were to take, say, the Amish in Pennsylvania, they've still adopted certain technologies that are creations of man, even if they haven't you know, gone full-blown into the tech, some of the technologies that, that we use today. So number one, if it's a creation of man, like that's not an argument, I would say. Number two is one of the things that, that the scripture warns against is vain and, and empty philosophies, right? And it's not philosophy as such. Philosophy is just a love of wisdom in one sense. In another sense, in an academic sense, it's theorizing about how the world works together, or how all of the things in the world or the cosmos work together. And scripture speaks to that, right? Number one, we have a series of books in scripture that we refer to as the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and I would include Job and Song of Solomon. Those are books that all have wisdom in it. And we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mind is one of those things. We love the wisdom of God. So why would we not be lovers of philosophy, which philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. So that doesn't make, it doesn't make sense to throw it out for that reason. The other thing is that philosophy as an academic venture is about theorizing about how creation, how God's created order actually works together. And Colossians 1 speaks to that when it talks about the supremacy of Christ. It says, in Christ, all things hold together. Well, that's great. Like, awesome. That gives us a foundation from which to work from. But now we have the freedom to actually see how all of those things work together in Christ. And that's just a new opportunity to learn more about how awesome our God is. I mean, scripture even says that the created order testifies to the glory of God. Why would we not study it? So I would say for those people who have an objection to using a creation of man or using a philosophy or reasoning through things, they're not paying very close attention to scripture. There's certainly ways of thinking that we should avoid, but we're not going to know why we should avoid them or how to avoid them until we've thought through them. (laughs) So, yeah. Usually the people who are saying these types of things are doing so, I would say, more often than not because they're trying to push a false or warped understanding of scripture and they don't want you to question it. 
They just want no, you to say, hey, yeah. this is what the Bible says. You can't question it. This, I'm the, we're the sole interpreter of what is right. So it's, I, I think that's the actual reason why they have that, that they, they don't want, it's it, because their weird constructions fall apart upon scrutiny. So of course, they're going to discourage that kind of scrutiny, I think. Well, this is one reason why scripture calls us to test the spirits to know if they're yeah. from God right? Is because Jesus warned us, there are going to be false teachers and false doctrines that are intended to fool Christians, right? That's what we were warned about. So how else are we going to figure that out except to think through scripture and doctrine and what is true? And I want to also go back to pointing out Job, the story of Job. Job was, was tested himself And he challenged God, but God praised him for challenging him, for challenging Mm. God in good faith, right? This wasn't like an antagonistic sort of, there's something wrong with God. It was Job saying, I know these things are true of you, but why are X, Y, and Z happening? This doesn't Mm. make sense. So Job was praised by God for challenging God and questioning him in good faith. That's excellent. All right, everyone. That's all I have for you today. Like I said, in a few weeks, you'll hear the rest of the interview I have with Carrie, which will be on some different topics, but I hope that this one was informative and enjoyable for you. As always, if these kinds of conversations are things that you enjoy listening to, you can go to biblicalanarchypodcast.com and consider making a one-time donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute or $10 or more a month. Get to status as a LCI insider, which comes with a whole slew of perks. So definitely check that out. All right, that's it for today. We'll talk to you all next week. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.